I certainly had a few people, men and women, kind of, you know, say something like that. You know, don't worry, honey, your time will come. So when you heard that, what did you do? I didn't listen to it. I just (laughs) kept at it. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Today's guest is one of six children who got her start in the magazine industry. Now she's been named one of the most influential people in food in the world. Whether you love to eat or you want to be a celebrity chef, you know the organization she runs, the James Beard Foundation, which every year hosts the James Beard Awards, a.k.a. the Oscars of the food business, that essentially decides whether you've got the hottest restaurant or a bunch of available reservations on Open Table. (laughs) She is a first-generation American, the first in her family to finish high school and college, and I'm delighted to welcome Susan Ungaro. It's so nice to have you. Welcome. Thanks, Rebecca. So you are one of six kids growing up. I have to imagine that that really defines the path that you are on in life. <laughs> well, my my siblings would have said I was bossy, but I think it also got me ready for leadership. You were the oldest. Yes, I was the oldest. Yeah. And, and you became the first in your family to go to high school and college. Yes. Well, my parents came here from Ireland, you know, immigrating back in the early 1940s. 40s, and they didn't. They grew up in a little agricultural vi- village called Castle Gregory, and they did not even get to finish school. So, yes, I was the first to finish high school and come home uh, junior year, saying to my mother and father that the guidance counselor thinks that I should uh, not go to Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School, but I should go to college. And my parents were fabulous people because right away they said, "Okay, and what do we have to do? What do you have to do?" Wow. To be able to come home and say that to your parents and have that kind of response had to be a very empowering thing for you. It it was. My parents always expected us to do better than them. And uh, every one of my siblings went to college or nursing school. So um, my parents did really well by us. What did you want to be when you were a kid? (laughs) Well, I actually wanted to be a a teacher. um, And I also wanted to be a comedian because I loved um, uh, the flying nun. And I thought I I didn't quite want to be a nun, but I liked the idea of being a comedian. And believe me, I am certainly no stand-up. You never tried comedy in any way? No, no. (laughs) Uh, But I think the most important thing in an office environment working with people is that we have time for laughter. In marriage, too. That is such a good point. You were the editor-in-chief of Family Circle for 12 years when you decided to go work for James Beard. Well, actually what happened is I was at Family Circle my whole career, graduated from a state college in New Jersey, started as an editorial assistant, uh, grew up, got married, had three children, and became the editor, um, yes, when I was actually seven months pregnant with my third child. The New York Times owned us. And I was uh, editor-in-chief for about 12 years, and the the magazine company was sold at, was sold at least once while I was editor. Uh, and on the day of the sale, a lot of executives, as people, your listeners know, often that happens. I was no longer working for Family Circle, neither was the publisher and some other VPs. But I had had a plan, and I think it's really important for people to think about what do I want to do next, even when you love your career, love what you're doing. You always should have some other ideas of, you know, what if – the worst happens. And uh, I had an idea that I really wanted to work for a foundation. Uh, and I, so when I was at the magazine, even before I became editor in chief, I started uh, volunteering and being on board of trustees of nonprofits. So in my head, I had a plan that once I was done with this wonderful 
career at Family Circle, and it was a great career, uh, that I really wanted to run a, run a foundation, and that's how I really ended up at the James Beard Foundation. What helped you understand <clears throat> what those ambitions, what those motivations were? Because I think a lot of us, you know, we hear about the idea of having the plan B, but for so many people, you're so busy doing plan A, you don't really have time to either work on plan B or even come to realize what plan B might be. I think that if you really think about it, even no matter how busy you are in the in you the have work to set you time do, aside. You know, most most people who are uh, successful in whatever they do are doing something in their personal life that could lead to discovering another. Uh, passion. Um, and, you know, sometimes the plan is just you're going to go work for another company that's very similar to the one you're you're at, but you also should be at least scoping out and learning about which other company in the field that you're interested in is one you might be interested in. When you were getting started in yeah. the early years, what were what was the most difficult lesson to learn? Oh, that's a really good question. I think when I was much younger, and of course this, this was like the 1980s, 70s, 80s, um, you know, being a woman, just just to get taken seriously uh, was a lot harder than I think it is today, although it's still a challenge. Uh, but I also think uh, the other thing is to really be willing to know what you don't know. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, there's, there's, you know, this cliche. There's no such thing as a, stu- a, a stupid question because you know every question is important. And I, I also think it's really important to like watch the people who are managers in your company, and you can learn from the good ones, mm-hmm. but you also learn great lessons from the bad ones. Like. I don't want to be like that person. Mm-hmm. I think also to add to your point about asking questions, and sometimes I even wish I asked questions earlier on in my career. I was so worried about being taken seriously yes. that I wouldn't ask what I thought were basic questions because I didn't want anyone to think I didn't know what I was doing. But I would add to that to find the people, the right people to ask the questions of. And mm-hmm. that really takes two things. One, can you trust them yes. that if you ask them what you deem to be sort of the silly question or the low-level question that they're not going to judge you for it. It's Mm -hmm. not going to hamper your growth. You're going to learn from it. Mm -hmm. And second of all, that they can actually answer the question and give you a really smart answer. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. You can't Google it all. You got to also have, you know, talk to the people who are in it because it is it is different. Um, I, I also think uh, when you're working for a company, a boss, a group, uh, and there's a problem and, you know, Bad things happen, mistakes happen, uh, that you don't come and just run into the room, you know, crying that, oh, my God, we just didn't get that account or this story fell through. You, you, you take a minute and at least have some ideas of like a solution. I know in, in, in my management years in magazines and at the foundation, the people that you really value as a manager are the people who are your problem solvers, not just presenting the problem to you. Absolutely. And uh, there's there's almost nothing worse than being in idea generation or in that phase of trying to create or execute something. And the naysayers who just purely have nothing but negative to say, if you're going to say no to an idea, then you better have a good idea to put out there as well. I totally agree. All right. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page about that one. We are. When when you were a young female and you said that it was hard to be taken seriously, what were some of the things that you did that helped you gain a, a level of seniority mm-hmm. in people's mind that they could trust you and that you could speak out and speak your mind? Um, 
Well, I think you have to prove yourself. A lot of this was obviously during my time at, at Family Circle. It was a woman's magazine. And um, the, at that time, believe it or not, there were seven great women's magazines. Family Circle was one of seven. And there was only one that had a woman as an editor-in-chief. Uh, I think really the, what, what worked for me was that I would always raise my hand to do a, do a, to say, I want to do that article. I want to, I want to be part of that marketing study group and just you know let them know that I was ambitious sometimes you know I mean I, I wanted to be the editor-in-chief you know that question that that they used to say what you know when you're interviewed where, would, where do you see yourself five years from now well I told the editor-in-chief back then and I was 24 ah five years from now I want to be editor-in-chief of family Circle. <laughs> I bet the editor-in-chief loved that I think he probably did but the the point is I you know I'd read that, and actually, Barbara Walters had this great book, you know, <laughs> that was that that was out year, many years ago, all about the questions that she asked right. in interviews, and uh, I, I I think following that advice, just always always raising uh, your your desires higher in a company, is smart, and you know, nobody really knows what the manager's job is until they get that job. And we've all been in that place. You get promoted and then you're like, oh, so this is what it's really Mm -hmm. about. And it gets more and more difficult. In spite of the fact that when you're coming up, you think that it'll get easier. Mm -hmm. In in my experience, the higher you climb, the more complex the questions become. That's true. And I think this may be, it may sound a little old fashioned, but I still think it's important today. You know, uh, dress like the person you want to be. In other words, you should really look around wherever you work. Uh, I mean, I know this doesn't quite work for the Internet companies in general, but, you know, in in many other business relationships and experiences, you should dress like the manager that you want to be, not because you're just an assistant. When you started at James Beard, Mm -hmm. the foundation was in pretty significant financial trouble. Yes. And you turned it around. But what in the world made you think, well, this would be a good idea for me? <laughs> well, there were two things. I, I wanted to run a foundation. And at the time, uh, one of the new members of the Board of Trustees was the editor of Bon Appetit magazine, a wonderful woman named Barbara Fairchild. And she called me up and said, you know, is it true you don't want to run another magazine? You want to run a foundation? And the answer, of course, I was of mine was yes. I looked into James Beard's life, read his biography. I knew a little bit about him, and I really loved what he stood for. And I really felt that uh, that the foundation deserved to be catapulted back into a place that it deserved. And I, I honestly felt like I couldn't make it worse. I could only make it better. I mean, I, I was in a good, you know, sometimes they'll say, better to take over a, a struggling organization than one that's doing really well, because, you know, how do you improve on it? It's a little harder, I think. You know, the person, the next person after me is, I think, is going to have a little harder job because we're in, you know, we, we've we taken a foundation that was losing over a million dollars a year 10 years ago to uh, a surplus of over a million. And, uh and we've, we've done a lot of great programs that you know we can all be proud of, all the people that I work with. Bravo. When I'm reading your bio and learning about your yeah. background, I wondered, being one of six kids, how much did that help you on the financial side, sort of figure out how to make more with less? Ah, that's so interesting. Um, you're, you're, I think I learned that in publishing, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good point, too. Yes, but, indeed. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, I, I grew up in a mi- very middle-class Irish-American uh, family, and yes, nothing came easy. I had to work my way through college. In fact, I really only have had three 
three worked for three companies. I worked my way through college at McDonald's, and then I went to Family Circle, and then to the James Beard Foundation. So, how did you get all of your culinary interests? How did you learn about food? Well, I certainly learned a lot about food at Family Circle. I used to, you know, I thought you were going to say McDonald's. Look, you know what? McDonald's was not um, the place where families ate every day. When I was at McDonald's, it was fast food was fine if you ate it once a week. I mean, it, it things have changed a lot in you know, 35, 40 years it's since I've been at McDonald's. Um, so I would say that what's, what, I, what I really learned from a family circle was about 25% about food, fashion, and beauty, and everything else. Um, and I was not the food editor. I eat. I was, had a family. And I honestly did not get the job at the James Beer Foundation because I had been a former food editor. I was, I, I was sort of a Jill of all trades. Uh, I think you know what helped me was I had been been on the board of board of trustees of four nonprofits, and I I also like once I landed in the job and you know when you when you land in a new position like president of a foundation there's a lot of learning to do a lot and what I really realized pretty quickly was that a lot of the skills I has had had as an editor were very transferable. You know, as, when you're the editor in chief, you're the chief spokesperson. Well, so is the president of of a foundation. Uh, members were like readers, sponsors and supporters were like advertisers. Events were like story ideas. I mean, it really there it was quite like amazing how transferable a lot of the skills are and I I think that's true in a lot of careers that if you start really thinking about the core skill and not the job position, you'll realize, people will realize that they, they actually have a lot more to offer. They don't have to stay in one little silo. So if someone came to you today and yeah. said, I desperately <clears throat> want to be in the magazine industry, what do you say? Well, I would say that it's not the magazine industry anymore. It's the information content industry. And if you really love being a journalist and a content manager, you should be aware of how it is today. I see magazines, you know, uh, struggling for readers, print readers, and it's everything's online. And it's I think it's a it's a different world is it's uh, I hope I hope they don't go away. Like, I still love to go to the supermarket and see Family Circle magazine there at the checkout for sale. It's it's interesting that you say that about having to be a content creator, because mm. you think about a lot of magazines, some that are even no longer in print, but right. they have their digital domains. They're still providing content and sometimes even reaching a broader audience when you think about social media reach and everything like that. Totally. Um, but the job of the, the, the person coming into the industry is a little bit different. You have to think about it a little bit differently. Absolutely. And I, I hope that uh, colleges and courses in journalism and communications are at least preparing their students with that in mind. Well, I, now that you bring <clears throat> that up, this is what I am curious about the idea because, and I understand Family Circle was a few years ago for you now, but for the people who are coming in with journalism degrees, journalism backgrounds, what are the skills that you wish they had? So anyone who's listening right now mm-hmm. who wants to go there, mm-hmm. what are the skills you wish they had when they came in? Well, I, I think I can even just talk about the James Beer Foundation. We sure. Have a, we have an editorial team at the James Beer Foundation. Content is important everywhere Absolutely. now. And I think uh, today's um, young men and women who want to be in the information business have to be great 
great at it, great not only at you know looking up getting the facts right, especially in these times, but also they need to know how to market the information. Social media is everything, and uh, I think that anyone who goes to any company, they're going to basically be using their editorial and writing and journalism and investigative skills also in social media, and you know they're going to be marketing and brand. It's it's like people are becoming brands. The brands are brands and the people who write for the for the, the the reporters have to be able to talk about the stories. I mean when I was in Family Circle in print, it was rare that uh, editors were on radio and television. It mm-hmm. wasn't like an everyday thing. Now it's 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 much more common. So I think if anything, you know, looking for somebody who has uh, multi-talents, is not just a good journalist and a writer but also has has the presence that they can speak as well as they write. And so many chefs now also Mm, are their own brand and they're their own celebrity. I mean, 10 years ago, there were very few what we would call celebrity chefs. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe 15 years ago. But now... They're everywhere. If you if you win a James Beard Award, and I said it a little bit in jest at the top, but if you win a James Beard Award, all of a sudden your restaurant is packed into perpetuity. And by the way, you're probably doing radio gigs and yes. you're probably on TV shows, probably on some reality shows. A lot of chefs have done yes, that, too. Exactly. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, Food Network, believe it or not, is over 20 years old. It's hard to believe that, actually. So they, I give them a lot of credit. Then, and then all the other networks have, you know, saw the hunger Americans have. Literally, for, really, yeah, that's right. For food uh, stories and food shows and competition and learning how to cook, and I think that um, you know, chefs. That's why I said earlier that they they can't just to really succeed. Uh, yes, everybody goes to culinary school, and maybe they are hoping that they're going to be on television. But first, they have to establish themselves as a good a good chef. And then once you've done that, and you've won a James Beard Award, and yes, uh, it is it is like the best adjective in front of that chef's name or restaurateur's name. That they also then have to like figure out how to the the marketing the the social media skills i mean now you know even chef, i mean obviously all the great chefs and even the chefs that are up and comers are on social media they all have twitter and instagram and social media and snapchat accounts and <laughs> uh it's it's i think it's an exciting time i really do uh, but there's a lot of clutter. So to break through the clutter, I think, is is really where the geniuses come in. What's the secret to that? And and what is the secret to winning a James Beard Award? Well, there's really, you know, when, I, I don't think you can say there's a secret to uh, becoming the next, you know, uh, Maria Batali or Bobby Flay or uh, Giada De Laurentiis. But I, I do, I actually do think that um, becoming a winner takes a lot of work, and it, it takes social rec- recognition. So the James Beard Awards is is uh, is uh, run by a, a totally independent group of people, journalists, and people who un- understand the food business. And so the Restaurant and Chef Awards right now, uh, you know, anyone can go online and nominate chefs and restaurants. Uh, but that number, those numbers will be uh, will will be tabulated by Lutz and Carr, an independent accounting firm reviewed by a Restaurant and Chef Awards Committee, which is about 15 people that are really like, you know, experts in the business. And then the, the, the semifinalist number goes out to over 600 people, which include about 450 past winners of James Beard Restaurant and Chef Awards, and then another 250 uh, journalists that cover cover all the regions of the United States. So it's really an elect, uh, a, you're selected by a jury of your peers or people who are covering 
your the beat of restaurants and chefs. And so, uh, you know, I think the secret is just to be to stand out, to you know, have the best restaurants in the in the cities where you where you work, and to get the word out. I mean, the, it doesn't hurt to market just like you know any ba- major awards. You need to make sure that people know who you are. And I do think the media is helping uh, get the word out. Well, I was thinking about that yeah. because with the with the Oscars, sometimes you hear about the politicking that goes on behind the scenes. Yes, and d- is that something that happens? I mean, yeah, I think that I think it's I think what the Oscars does is not so much behind the scenes. They take out ads and all of the major, you know, <laughs> right? It's I not mean, a secret. No, it's not a secret. Uh, but you I, always get this idea that behind the scenes, there's oh. sort of uh, you know little handshakes, winks. We'll work together on another project oh. that the Academy. I actually. I, that I haven't read about. So uh, that's interesting that that might be true. I, I, I'd say that's not true in our business, in the food business at all. I think that I think it's still very – it's got a lot of integrity. Um, that uh, it, it, very, There's very little lobbying, you know, of people saying, vote for me. I mean, and I, I, I see it if it happens, and it's so small, it's not even worth, like, talking about. Maybe I can count on my hand the times I've seen somebody send out an email saying, vote for me. <laughs> Um, one of the things I know that you're yeah. very passionate about is increasing the number of women who are considered for these awards mm-hmm. and awarded these very prestigious awards. When we met, I don't know, five years ago or something, yes. um, the you were making a very big push at the time and still are mm-hmm. to engage more women in the culinary community. And it, it surprised me at the time that the, it's so disproportionate yeah. when you look at the number of women who are restaurateurs, mm-hmm. chefs versus men, and also what the compensation is. I actually have, the compensation issue is not one that's come up. It's about getting real estate to have your own restaurant. It's a banking issue, how hard it is for women just in general, and certainly women who want to have a restaurant, or a, a, a person of color, an African-American, a Latina person, they, they have trouble getting the uh, financial backing of banks. And why is that? I think it's just an inherent uh, bias in the financial industry. I mean, it's 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 there. It's it still hasn't gotten as good as it should be. But let's go back to you know why I cared about the the you know you, ten years ago I came to the to the James Beard Foundation. Came from a major woman's magazine, a magazine where we made sure that that uh, we had a very diverse readership. That every single issue a woman of color would see herself in that magazine. That was really important to us as editors. Come to the James Beard Foundation, see the first James Beard Award and other things, and you have to be blind not to see that that the number of women getting awards or being recognized as nominees was still was very low. Uh, I remember looking at, it was 20 years, that, uh, the 20th anniversary when I came to the James Beard Foundation. And uh, up until then, uh, of the 20 outstanding chef in America, like the best chef in America awards, only three women had won. And it, it, they were Lydia Bastianich, Alice Waters, and the late uh, Judy Rogers. Uh, fast forward 10 years now that I've been there, um, we have We've had Suzanne Gowen and Nancy Silverton win just the past two years. There was no outstanding restaurateur in 25 years. I'm at the foundation five years into it, more women are being recognized because we've raised we, we, we made a commitment to what we could control. All of our programs, who cooks at the Beard House, who cooks at the gala, anytime we could put a woman forward and a person of color, we would. We've made some progress with women. We have not made the progress that we should have with pe- uh, people of color. And that's true 
out there in businesses in the Fortune 500. I can give you all the stats. I'm, I'm like crazy about all this. Um, but women, we, we've had two women win the best re- outstanding restaurateur award, which is like a, a woman who could get a loan, who could have a restaurant, have a business. So there's, there's. Uh, I think it's really raising people's consciousness. And uh, uh, in, in 2009, we actually uh, our theme for the awards was women in food, and at the time, only. Um, Twenty-two percent of the nominees were women, and now it was this. You know, move uh, six years later, thirty-two percent of the nominees are women. But we still have a long way to go. One of the things I read: the outstanding pastry chef semifinalists were nearly all women. Yes, eighteen to two. So uh-huh. eighteen women, two <laughs> right. men. What is it about pastry oh. that makes women more drawn to that category? It's really such a simple answer. They can control the hours they work. Interesting. I mean, you know, they, they don't have to work until midnight. They come in. Most pastry chefs are creating the, the desserts the morning of. It's like, think about bakeries. And, um, you know, there's no doubt that in every industry, including the restaurant industry, that, you know, the, the person bearing the children and having the family, uh, even in the most egalitarian household, I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I if someone had told me that I would have three children had become the editor-in-chief of, ma- of a Family Circle, I, you know, I would have said, yeah, but I also would have like thought, how am I going to do it? But I had a very, very supportive husband, father, and I had a very supportive uh, group of managers ultimately that were, that I worked for. And I think I think that's key, that for women like Suzanne Goen and Nancy Silverton, who won Outstanding Chefs, and people like uh, Barbara Lynch, who won Outstanding Restaurateur, they have great stories to tell about how how they believe it's actually even harder in the restaurant industry for women to get ahead than, say, in other business industries. Every person who comes on my show, I have to ask them, because we get a lot of advice. Some of it is good. Some of it is bad. Uh-uh. What's the worst advice? that you've been given along the way? Uh, I would think the worst advice was somebody say, don't worry, honey, your time will come. A phrase. But that wasn't really advice. That was just... But I guess but it, it was be. essentially that you should be waiting yeah, instead of yes, moving don't forward. Don't be so damn ambitious. You know, give yourself time. But I, I certainly had a few people, men and women, kind of, you know, say something like that. You know, don't worry, honey, your time will come. So when you heard that, what did you do? I didn't listen to it. I just kept at it. <laughs> what, what what was it at the time? Because I'm assuming yes. that you were young and, and just starting out when you heard this kind of advice. Well, no, it happened even like more mid-career. Really? When I would like, um, it actually it happened when I was working for the New York Times and I was the, I was like executive editor of Family Circle and there was another smaller magazine that um, they were looking for an editor-in-chief and I could have done that job with my hands tied. I, I don't mean to say, I could have got, I wanted that job. Let's just put it that way. I applied for it and everything. Didn't get it. Someone else got it. And I was very disappointed. And it was basically, you're more valuable here. Don't worry. Your time will come. Now, luckily for me, it actually did happen. But that didn't make me happy. Mm-hmm. I completely get it. Because I asked worst advice, let's go with best <laughs> advice. Your number one piece of advice to people out there who want to make a difference, live their best life. I think just you know be authentic and never stop asking questions and Always, always meet new people. I think the one thing people get, uh, I guess it's a little more than one piece of advice, but I think you really, you learn so much from other people. Uh, Make lunch dates with people who are in your industry but not in your company. Or maybe also make lunch dates or coffee dates with people that you admire that are not even in your industry. 
you know, it's, it's a little easier when you're an, an editor, and I was an editor, and I got to do that a lot. But I even do it now. You know, it's, it's important. I like to know people who run other nonprofits. Susan Ungaro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been great. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. Remember, if you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. And here's a little taste of what's coming up next week. I learned very quickly. They see your weakness. Yes, yes. And mistaking my kindness for my weakness. That was something I had to really learn. And be firm about my tone and the way I carry myself. And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Bancardo, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.